That's a rabbit hole. Don't need to go down that rabbit hole. Hello and welcome back to episode 13 of the Double Reel Film Podcast. This is the second reel of our monthly magazine-style podcast for film nerds. Hopefully you've caught up with the first reel, had a brief intermission, and refueled ready to take on this mighty second installment of Nerdy Film Chat. If you haven't caught the first reel yet, please do go back to your app and download and listen to it so you're up to date with all the features we've covered already this month. These include our roundup of news and spotlight on some of the films we watched this month, our classic and recommended feature on Antu Shabla, our hidden gem, The Damned United, the one that got away about David Lean's Nostromo, and our remake Hate Watch of The Upside. Now in Reel 2, we bring you our big conversation where we tackle a weighty topic and give it a fuller, i.e. longer, discussion. Joining me as always is my co-host, James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to get into this one. It's, uh, it's a bit of a bit of more laid-back kind of topic. It's not as uh, not, it's not serious, but it's, uh, it's like a kind of more chilled kind of yeah, I, yeah I, I agree, yeah. So, so this month, we're each providing our list of five films that changed our lives. We are, of course, using the phrase changed my life in a pretty loose sense most of the time. Defining moments in our lives watching films would be the you know, the way we would describe it. Well, one or two of these are, for me anyway, are linked to like important life events. But that's about it. I do appreciate that some people might have genuinely life-changing experiences as a result of watching a film. It could have to do with the person's, you know, sexuality or other, you know, personal situation, political situation, or inspiration just to do something with their lives. For us, I think it's just films that had a real imp- impact on us when we watched them or stand out as milestones in some way. So, for the purpose of this feature, we've each decided uh, not to share our list of five films with each other. So we're going to discover it as as you, the listener, does. Uh, and we'll just take it in turns one at a time to talk about each film on our list. Uh, if one of us mentions a film that's on both our lists, we'll discuss it together right then. Um, but other than that, it's just going to be a kind of you know loose discussion about you know five films that made a big difference to us. And uh, hopefully it'll inspire you to either watch a film that's, that's on our list that you haven't seen before, or maybe think of your own list of five kind of milestone films in your life. So uh, shall I go first, James? Yeah, crack on. So... The one that kind of immediately sprang to mind, and I've mentioned this a few times before, is Star Wars, uh, you know, aka Episode Four: A New Hope, the uh, 1977, you know, first film that was ever released in the Star Wars franchise. Uh, and look, this changed my life because it was the first film I ever saw at the cinema. My first ever trip. Uh, I was four years old. Uh, my little sister had recently been born, and I have no recollection of having any problem with that. You know, it's like, hey, it's a baby. Hello, baby. You know, but I think my parents thought it would be good for me to have some dad time all to myself with this all going on at home. Uh, so he took me to the cinema. I'm sure he wanted to see the film himself because the original Star Wars wasn't just like an exciting new film. I think it was something that appealed to all generations to relive like stories, films and stuff they found exciting when they were kids. Um as you know, I, th- I think it's different things for different people. For me, I had absolutely no frame of reference to what I was doing. I was sitting in this room full of people staring at this curtain. It opened, 20th Century Fox Music Fanfare blares out, a room full of screaming heads, all full silent look at the, the screen. You get the Star Wars music, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I can't even able to read the text at that age. But, you know, the story gets established. Super exciting. Um, I mean, there's no need to... You know, go through the story of Star Wars. I think it's a familiar enough story for everyone there. But I mean, it's just, I think it's just the fact that it was my first time. You know, it's really exciting watching something on a big screen in a big group of people. I think it's quite a big, 
it's quite an intense experience. It's certainly quite a captivating experience. And, you know, this, you know, the original Star Wars film is just a really exciting adventure that really gets you caught up in it. And um, I think we talked about this before. We were talking about your first film and my first film, mate, that I think it's quite possible that my brain is filled in the blanks with the hundreds of times I've watched Star Wars since. But I'm, I'm very sure and very vividly remember at the time just completely following the story. It's one of those films where you just get it. They're the bad guys, they're the good guys, there's the rebellion, there's the empire. You just kind of worked it out from the music and the look and the characters. You knew who the good guys were, who the villains were. And I think everyone in, in that room must have been in the same boat because there was an absolute riot at the end when the Death Star blows up. Spoilers, sorry. You know, rivaled only when I went to see Rocky Four and Drago gets counted out at the end, which, again, spoilers, sorry. Um, so, you know, <laughs> so you know, this it's, it's, it's a film that changed my life because it was just a huge thing for kids of my generation. I had about 10 Star Wars figures and a small Millennium Falcon. I know there'd have been kids with bigger collections than that, but that was a big thing to me. The film has a theme tune you can hum. Uh, you know, lightsabers. I think it's I saw it's it. space. It's 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 a film in fucking space, and you were four, or you were it's just yeah. It was perfect, it was absolutely <laughs> perfect. You know, I think I got to see it ten times in a you know you know what you'd call a proper cinema. Um, record it off the TV when it was finally shown. That recording got watched so often that when I watch it now, you know, I can watch it on Blu-ray or Disney Plus or whatever, and I can even remember where that version broke for commercial. Like, 3PO, where can he be? Cut to commercial. It's burned, <laughs> it's burned into my brain. And uh, the other, the most notable showing I think I've ever had of uh, of Star Wars is that uh, living in Bangladesh, long story, won't go into that here, someone got hold of a copy of Star Wars, and there's no videos back then, so this is like got a copy of it on, on a reel and got a film projector and watched it, and it was uh, in Spanish with no subtitles, <laughs> uh, and the film finishes when they escape from the Death Star, and it doesn't have the Death Star attack in it. That's a version of Star Wars that I saw. I've no idea where that came from or how that came about. Um, and it's just been a huge part of my life. You know, I got, you know, Star Wars Christmas presents, you know, uh, costumes and everything else. It's just, uh, you know, it, it was just such a thing for you. There was the, there was the film, there was a the toy, there was the lunchbox and it just, you know, it was just the most amazing thing. You didn't just play, watch that film. You then went and played that film with your mates, you know, outside. So, you know, that's my first one. I, I don't know if Star Wars is on your list, mate. Probably isn't. It isn't. It's my, it's probably my favorite series of film, but it's not. I just want, I was going to ask what the fuck was going on in Spain in the 70s, but then realised probably shouldn't be asking that question because uh, it was the end of a, a dictatorship and that's probably why they weren't too concerned about how Star Wars and New Hope ended. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was just, this This would have been after Franco, but you know what it's like. I don't imagine, the, the, bit, I don't yeah. imagine the machinery and maybe the film censors were still a bit weird. I don't know. I mean, it could have been, it could have been a Spanish edition for a South American country. I mean, I've got no idea, but it's just... True. Which were probably all, all of those are probably going through dictatorships as well. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So, yeah, that's – so, you know, I think most people have got, like, a favourite. I mean, most people my age would probably say Star Wars for similar no, reasons. I've not got Star Wars on my list. You know it's my favourite series of films. I love The Mandalorian. I'm very excited for the uh, Obi-Wan series yeah. coming up. Yeah. Um, Is Ewan McGregor going to be in that? Yeah. I've, oh, do, you know, do you know what they're going to – have you seen the cast? Okay. No, I've never been excited for Hayden Christensen, but – Apparently, okay. Apparently, oh, not behind closed doors. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Basically, what apparently he, he's coming back, and there's going to be flashbacks of like Anakin and Obi Wan. So, see All when right. they did that nonsense Clone War series, which was yeah. in between Attack of the Clones, where there was a lot of character development 
before Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi, apparently there's going to be flashbacks of that, but with like an older Obi-Wan or now Ben Kenobi looking back, sounds oh, fucking amazing. And it's a good chance for Hayden Christensen to actually flesh out a character that hasn't been written by George Lucas. Yeah, yeah. Is, um, is John Favreau running that show? Uh, I would say like he's one of the execs, but sure, I, I can't sure. I can't quite... Probably, can't just quite for, probably just for consistency, isn't it? We heard the cast: Hayden Christensen, Joel Edgerton. I don't know who Maya Ruskin is. Rupert Friend, who played uh, Moses mm. Ingram, uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr., who played his dad in Stranger Things. Oh, very Compton. good. Very good. Sung Kang from the uh, Fast and Furious franchise. Man. Obi Wan Kenobi, Kumal Nanjiani. Oh, nice. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and Indira Varma, who is meant to be playing. This is a, this is a complete tangent to what the big conversation meant to be. But I've played the uh, Jedi Fallen Order video game. Yeah, basically that follows a guy who is he's a padawan when Order sixty six happens, and he's basically getting hunted down by what are called these um, are the Inquisitors. I think that's the name, and they're basically mm-hmm. they're kind of like force sensitive, and they're basically that, what Darth Vader does after um, Order sixty six is he just goes hunting down the last Jedi. So Indira Varma is meant to be playing her, and she was she's been very good in Game of Thrones and Rome, and uh, just ah uh, yes, yeah, yeah, I know very good cast. yeah, yeah, very good, yeah. But yeah, Star Wars isn't on my list probably because it's. It's such a mixed bag. I will always love the Star Wars universe. I I think my fondest memories of Star Wars are more, you know, me and you fanning about with toy lightsabers in the garden when I was... Yeah, yeah, me. yeah. So I'll always have a soft spot for it, but the films have just been a bit too hit and miss. I, th- um, I think the films that you love best probably weren't the ones that were out of the cinema when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. but I mean, obviously Star Wars has got obviously had far-reaching influences all yeah, over yeah. the place. It's, you know. it's more than just the films now, which is good. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about Star Wars or should I move on? No, to no, that was it. I mean, I think that's just going to describe that, you know, kid, that first I, I, experience, I, that vivid things. But yeah, really have, why don't you take one off your I list? don't have a particular order of these. What I'll do is I'll... No, no, it. just whatever order you like, mate. No, 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 because I'll try and match like the kind of, like, not energy, but the tone of like the film that you've picked and see if I can sure, kind of right. So I've picked Toy Story 2. Um, ah, so have I. Right. So, Toy Story Two is basically my for my Star Wars. It was the, I, it's the first. It's probably I don't think it's the first film I ever saw, but it was the first one I saw in the cinema. Yep. And I just remember kind of going, you know, this is kind of fucking fun, you know. You know, the weekend, me and my dad, me and my best pal, just get to chill out in the cinema, eat some popcorn, and watch a big film with toys that are pretending with toys that are alive, basically. And then, um, it was just great. It was just. You know, I remember being captivated. I remember being captivated by the trailers. I remember even even though the cinemas in Waltham still were really grotty. Um, yeah. Like, I've got some really bad memories of the sticky floors, and I'm hoping it's popcorn. <laughs> and someone didn't just get excited by Hayden Christensen again. But um, Dearie me. Yeah, it was, it was just a good experience. It was going to the cinema and for the first time and not quite knowing what to expect. I don't know if that's when I first saw the trailer for Dinosaur. Yeah, I didn't it put is, that yeah. film on the list, but I put it in there in there as well because I remember being kind of surprised by that, and that's one of your like favorite anecdotes about my first mm-hmm. time at the cinema. Yeah, but um, yeah, Toy Story two. It's just a great film. It's it's probably my second favorite uh, Toy Story film. One of my favorite Pixar films. It's uh, just very good. Um, I think everyone's seen it, and it was just it was just that kind of. It's probably not the best film I've ever seen in the cinema. Probably wouldn't make my top five films ever I, I do really enjoy it um yeah. but it's just that that novelty and that first time you kind of look back on it with a bit of nostalgia and a bit of fondness of first time going to the cinema with your dad it's like a just like a, it was a really nice day it was a it was a nice sunny day as well as from what i can remember so it was just a nice day in general yeah i mean same for me i think there are several uh, uh, films on my list that i wouldn't put in my top 10 films of all time but 
you know, it's the experience, the timing, you know, it's a range of things. Yeah, so Toy Story 2 is on my list as well. And because, you know, I like it being your first film that you ever went to see. This was my first time as a father taking my kid to their first film, you know. Um, you know, we talked about this as part of our big conversation and, you know, you just mentioned it. This won't go over old ground, but it's a big milestone. It was a big milestone for my dad to take me to see Star Wars. Um, yeah. So this was a big milestone for me. Now, obviously, I've had other great cinema experiences with you, with your sister. I look forward to having some similar ones with my youngest, Rohan, in a couple of years. But you only have one first time as a dad watching a kid experience a film for the first time or experiencing that trailer for Dinosaur for the first time, you know, and that's, you know, one of the things that you do as a as a parent is you kind of, that you get something extra out of seeing your yeah. child experience something and seeing it through their eyes. And that's definitely what, you know, saw there. But I'll tell you what's interesting is that, I don't know how you remember this, but I remember after Star Wars, I wanted to watch lots of films, but in the back of my mind, I wanted all of them to be Star Wars. Do you know what I yeah. mean? And I'm not sure if you had the same, you had the same experience as a result of that, but I do remember you, um, you became interested in films and you wanted to see a film and you, you, you knew the difference between a film and other, you know, forms like whether it's a show or a, a TV, TV series. And I just remember, you know, there's something about a film and the way it's presented that kind of, kind of digs into your head, you know, um, obviously the most, uh, notable moment for me in Toy Story 2 was Jesse's song. And I think this, this is a special moment for parents. This, this film is, I mean, in the context of the film itself, Jesse's song is really touchingly and beautifully done because it's about the toy who's goes into storage because they're not needed anymore. Um, and, you know, that drives the whole story of the film, right? Woody has a dilemma about whether it's worth carrying on being a kid's toy if in the long run you just go end up in a shoebox. Yeah. Um, and the, the, he and the other toys decide it is worth it because of the experiences and everything. As a dad, it's this really intense experience because over the course of like a three-minute song, it's this revelation almost – as soon as your relationship with this kid has started, this is a revelation that one day this kid isn't going to need you anymore or not in the same way. Cause you know, and, and at that point a little kid is holding a hand to walk down the street and it's very close and all of that. And one day they're going to grow up and it's going to be different. And it right. hits you all at once. And it's really, really intense. You know, in real life, you do, your relationship develops over many years, you know, your relationship with the kids, you know, involves it into something different. You make a bunch of mistakes as a parent, life gets complicated, but on the other side of it, you're, when your kid grows up, you appreciate the relationship you now have with them, like getting to do a podcast with them about film, right? Yeah. But back then, all at once, it was this realization that, you know, it's going to be different one day and it's your job to kind of just accept that and, and get on with it. And that's a really, really, really intense experience. And it's uh, it's an example of when a film can bring out unbelievably intense emotions. And I imagine the reason you prefer Toy Story 3 to Toy Story 2 is because the emotional payoff at the end of that film yeah, is, um, is really, really incredible. A lo- uh, yeah, a lot to digest there. I've never looked at it like that, obviously, because when I was watching Toy Story 2, it was obviously like a sad moment, but I was seeing it from, oh, Jessie's now, you know, not got her human anymore. You know yeah. what I mean? She's Obviously, that's a totally different perspective, but I totally get the whole, you know, one day your kid is not going to be a kid anymore. They're going to grow up and then they'll have their own kids and things like that. It's... Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a big moment. Um, but yeah, for me, that, that moment was in Toy Story 3. Um, obviously, the bit at the end where you all think um, they're all going to be incinerated and they finally get saved, and you just thought it ended really nicely. And then it's that kind of passing on the baton. Of, to, the, to the little and, girl. Andy gives all of his toys to Bonnie, who's like four or five or something. And that was my moment in that. But no, Toy Story films are really good for that. Um, yeah, yeah. They're good for that in general, but they get it right uh, perfectly in the Toy Story Toy Story franchise. I think with 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 a good Pixar film, it's like they, they just take a real emotion 
Yeah. They, they don't start with what a kid's going to like. They start with what's a real feeling, what's a real you know compelling idea or a story that really makes you feel something. And, and how and do then we get and that? Then, and then yeah, exactly. And they just how make it suitable for, for kids, for adults to experience, and also for kids to kind of yeah, understand. Perfect. As well. Yeah. So cool. Toy Story two and was on your and my list. So is that me again going over with another film? <laughs> um, Gone for Inception. Aha, that was a near miss for me. That was like really? I've got a, I've got a couple of things that were like ne- nearly made it to my top five, and that was a that was a tough choice. But yeah, nearly. But no, that you, you've got the floor on your own for this one. Yeah, Inception is just an incredible film. It is Christopher Nolan's masterpiece. It's uh, it's just a film that it, it was the first film I'd watched. I think I was the right age for it. I was fourteen or fifteen. Wait, probably not. I was probably thirteen when it came out, but I went to see it. Um. Just for I turned fourteen, so I was I was a good age to see it, and it was it was enjoyable. I liked the idea of watching a film that made you think. It challenged. I mean, I don't I don't understand why people think Inception's hard to follow because it's not. But no, it was one of those films like what's going on here and how you know it's kind of like a race against the time. It's just it's perfect. I've got nothing bad to say about Inception. It's a film that I watched and I was blown away because there'd been times where you know we'd been to the cinema and you know there's a film I hadn't enjoyed or it was kind of boring. Like that. been watching like probably the Harry Potter films were the film that I'd see most regularly. And, you know, the Harry Potter films are on the whole quite shit um, apart from Prisoner of Azkaban because that's really good but um, you know yeah. I mean like the films I'd always find something boring in films and I think having a younger sister we might go and see films that she would want to go and see that I'd kind of been not dragged along but you know you know, films that were eh. just the fil- first time I'd ever watched a film and gone I've got nothing bad to say I've enjoyed every minute of that two and a half hour film yeah, it was the perfect film at the perfect time for you wasn't it yeah it was just that I couldn't I couldn't believe they could make something like that, and it was it, it was one of those films where nothing was missed on me because now when we talk about films like um, Toy Story, I'm watching, I'm seeing it from a different like I don't think I've actually watched any Pixar film since I was like you know maybe I'm not getting I'm not conveying myself correctly here, but I've seen Toy Story four in the cinema when I was nineteen, but I've not seen it again since. So the last time I watched Toy Story three was probably eleven years ago. The last time I watched Toy Story two was probably maybe. 12, 15 years ago, you know, we're getting into that. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm seeing these films from a different light, whereas this is the first time I saw a film and I like understood it. Nothing was missed on me. I, you know, connected with the film. It was just a film that, you, you know, it from start to finish, it's perfect. It starts perfectly and it ends. It's the perfect ending to any film. It's be, it's better. I'm not having the oh, ending of The Godfather oh, definitely, 1. definitely, definitely. I'm not I having mean, anyone say the ending to Godfather 1 is the best ending ever because it's Inception. You, I'm not, there's... There's no argument. It's uh, it's one yeah. it's one of the best films ever. It's so, it's so my. I, I think I've told you this before. My wife, your stepmom, has this tendency to fall asleep in IMAX showings. Chairs are really comfy. To be fair, yeah, right? it's really, really comfy chairs. You're leaning back. It's dark, and the, the screen kind of overwhelms you. So she fell asleep in the middle of Inception for thirty minutes. After which, it's like, look, I know it's an easy film to follow, but it's not as an easy film to try and explain to somebody. Just <laughs> miss like thirty minutes of it. So she's sitting there going, oh, "Okay, this is all very exciting." And then at the end. Uh, when the spinning top is going round and then the close-up on it, and everyone, the whole audience went, <sighs> there was that gasp. That was incredible. You just think all the visual splendor and you know drama and this, that, and the other that you've seen and a spinning top that's no, maybe no more than a, two inches high has a whole room full of people going, <gasps> and then it cuts the back. It, it's just it, brilliant, brilliant, it, brilliant. It amazes me that they can write a film that visceral and 
thought provoking to the point you know this is like a this is like a heist movie sort of like a heist movie where you're implanting memories through people's dreams and you're sharing dreams with them and it's about constructing the dream and populating the dream and making sure you've got enough firepower to survive the dream and making sure you go deep enough into the person's subconscious to think of that is a fucking incredible idea and yeah. then to even to have the genius to think this is what the final shot is going to be, it blows me away that someone can be that creative and smart when writing a film. It blows me away that some the, uh, Christopher and Jonathan Nolan had the brains to write that final shot and storyboard it. It just it still amazes me eleven years later. Yeah, I mean that Christopher Nolan and his brother when he writes with them, they have a they put a huge amount of store by the ending of the film. It's like if you've got to have the ending right. So, you know, they almost work back from the ending. I'm sure they I'm sure they had the overall concept of Inception before that, but I think the first thing to be absolutely nailed down and, and perfected in their script would have been that ending. Because they know that that and you've got to have the payoff. And yeah, absolutely nailed that. Yeah. So and I, and I think for you, obviously you you were getting to the age where you wanted a film to kind of really kind of open up a whole new world for you, right? And Yeah, it was kind of like that age from like you know you go from the age of you're watching cbbs then you go to cbbc and then i kind of grown out of cbbc and i was like kind of in that weird limbo where you can't really go and watch you know the expendables which is probably the film that was out at the time you can't go yeah, and yeah. watch the big violent films but you, you still want to watch something that's going to be entertaining i think it was a, it was a really good kind yeah of and i think that's what Nolan aims at he aims at a 12 rated blockbuster that will still make you think that's obviously what he's trying to do and no. I think different people have different opinions about where he's been more and less successful, but that's clearly what he's trying to do. Yeah. Um, nice one. Yeah, that's Inception. So n- nothing else to add on Inception? Yeah, so uh, that wasn't on my list, but it was a very, very near near miss. Uh, yeah, Tenet and Dunkirk were shit, by the way. Sort your shit out, Norman. <laughs> so shall I go now? Yeah. So my next one is Blade Runner, the director's cut, and specifically the director's cut, not the final cut, which you... Oddly enough, I wouldn't want if I was going to sit down to watch Blade Runner now. I wouldn't watch the director's cut because I've got the final cut. But the director's cut was the the complete game changer for me. And because yeah, it came out at the time and it was it just was rubbish. It was it wasn't really watched. And then the, there was the director's cut and then the final cut. So you yeah, yeah. you actually got to watch uh, what Ridley yeah. Scott wanted you to see. Yeah, I mean the original Blade Runner. It was, it's an interesting one. It, it had a number of fans. Me among them. It had a, it had a cult following through the eighties on, on home video uh, because it was so fascinating because of the world that it created. But there was an element of that Harrison Ford Harrison Ford voiceover. What's quite just wasn't quite. Do you know what I mean? And I I kept watching it. I watched Blade Runner. The you know the theatrical release a number of times and really liked it. And there was something about it that stuck with me. But even even then, I think I was conscious that's not you know it's not quite completely hanging together. But because it stayed with me, and then because the rumors started to grow, and there's no internet back then when this is happening. So this is you know I used to read Time Out magazine, which had a film section every week, and you'd hear stories it, that you know that it would grow and develop. That there was a director's cut of this film. Oh, what do you mean a director's cut of the film? A version of the film that was actually what Ridley Scott wanted to show that didn't get shown. Now, this is much more commonplace now. You don't have to explain this as a concept to people now. But this was like, certainly for me, the first time you suddenly went, oh, right, so there's actually more to this, that that ending, that tacked-on ending and the voiceover isn't how it's meant to be. How is it meant to be? And the excitement builds because you're, what you know, you're the even without the internet, you're reading articles about it and it's coming and I booked tickets to go and see it rather than just turning up at the box office. It's a real event for me. And I just remember there was a, 
a review of it again in Time Out that said uh, what was previously a flawed masterpiece is now simply a masterpiece. I'm like, oh, I've got to see this, you know? Yeah. And, and now this is so much more commonplace. It was very rare then, restored versions of films. The only one I'd heard of prior to that is Lawrence of Arabia got a restored version. And it happened by accident, apparently. Uh, they were doing a film festival in about 1990, 91 of like films that were set in LA. So they thought they'd do a variety of films. So Chinatown's probably on the list, uh, The Long Goodbye, which is a Robert Altman film. And so what's Dick Blade Runner on? You know, feature LA. And someone digs out a can of film and it says Blade Runner. Okay, they stick it on. Everyone watches it and goes, there's a voiceover. Oh, a unicorn? Where's that come from? And then a completely different ending. And everyone's like, fuck it. And this is only a rough cut. Everyone's like, fucking hell, this has completely changed the game. So by the time it's come out, you know, for me to see it, it's been touched up a bit. Went to see it. The other thing that was very significant here is that, you know, this is something I rented on, on, on you know, home video VHS, you know, through the 80s on small televisions. I think the biggest screen I'd watched on this film before was like a 21-inch standard definition television in the 1980s. And then in 1991, I'm getting a full-on big screen projection of this great film, and everything has now changed. Everything is right. The emotion. There's so much more emotion in this film when you take that voiceover away and you just see what Harrison Ford is doing and reacting to, or Rucker Howe is doing and reacting to. And... This is the film that kind of, you know, created this whole world now of like the cult following. And I know there was cult following to the film before, but the cult following that generates the right version of the film finally coming out. And, you know, now I've seen it on Secret Cinema and they've got the final cut. I bought about five copies of this film on home video, various things. And so, you know, rather than go too much into Blade Runner, I think the thing that's beautiful about the original Blade Runner film is that it, it purposely raises but doesn't answer the question of whether Deckard is a replicant. And Ridley Scott, the director, and Harrison Ford, the star of the film, answer the question differently about whether they think Deckard's a replicant. Right. And and I was I was really happy that the sequel sidestepped that question, left it open as well. But that film stacks up either way. If you believe Deckard's a replicant, you watch the film, it stacks up. If you believe Deckard isn't a replicant, you watch that film, it stacks up. And it's just like it's genius. It is an absolute work of work of bloody genius. So yeah, that's Blade Runner. I mean, again, I don't know how how that what that your relationship is to that film because it's it's a different time and place really for me than it's, for you. It's one of those films that you you love so much that when I watched it, I was like, yeah, that's good, but it was probably better when no one else had seen it. Yeah. Same for a Pulp Fiction. I think Pulp Fiction is grossly overrated. You know, I mean, I don't think Blade no, Runner is overrated. I, I do enjoy Blade Runner. Blade Runner is very good, but yeah, it's one of those films. Everyone tells it, you to watch it. it. it it's definitely it. about your relationship to the film. Do you know what I mean? Because home video is a big thing for me. It's not something that I think you grew up with because, you know, films were much more available. There were much more films on TV. It was cheaper to buy a film on video to own when you were growing up. It was quite expensive to buy video video to own in the 80s. So you rented a lot, right? And, yeah. and renting on video and then getting to see the finished version, this whole relationship to film that that signifies it's it, it, in fact it's it's not just the film itself it's my relationship to that film over like a decade you know yeah so that's that's me and blade runner okay so my next film is i'm trying to do these sort of chronologically although i don't think i've done them in the order i've seen them uh, i've gone for jaws very good um because it was the first film that i was forced to watch analytically i was forced to watch uh watch it analytically twice. I've written a couple of essays on Jaws for school and uni and stuff like that. Yeah. It was the first time I'd been told to watch a film and look at a film from a certain angle. Yeah. Uh, it was probably the first time, I, well, the first time I started being more critical of films because um, I was asked, I think, the first essay I was 
told to um, just analyse the, the this was like a, a secondary school essay, it was like first or second year, so it was very basic. But the question was, analyse the use of music and sound in the um, in, in Jaws, which is probably the most famous thing about Jaws. You, you know, you don't you yeah. really see the shark. It's all about the tension of the film. And, you know, John Williams' score is, um, you know, iconic. I think it's probably one of, if not the most iconic movie themes um, going. Some people probably say Star Wars and things like that. But it was the first time I would had to watch from then obviously I did it again for you. It was more, you know, discussed more just, I think, the theme of tension. Not the theme of tension, but how Steven Spielberg built up tension. So it was the first time I started stopped watching films kind of casually and thought, you know, films can be, you know, much more than just, you know, something you watch for two hours just to pass a bit of time. It was the first time I was like, the films are impressive. And if you actually look at them from a different angle or in a different light, you can get so much more from a film as opposed to just like, oh, look, they're trying to kill the shark or, you know, the shark's killing people. It was, that was the first moment I started not becoming a film connoisseur, but, you know, seeing them differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, and, and you, it, it helps you, you know, in, in, with the number of things when you, when you watch a film like that, first of all, there's a whole bunch of stories behind how Jaws was made that way. You know, it's interesting to note that the reason you don't see the shark that much is that the mechanical shark wasn't working very well. And yeah. the reason John Williams, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg focused so heavily on the, the John Williams score was that Steven Spielberg co- was collaborating with John Williams and said, look, we're having trouble with the shark. We need to give them something else. Um, we really need you to help us do something with the music. And John Williams came up with that score because it would – add something, you know, specifically that was otherwise missing. Right. And, you know, and I think it's, you know, that's another thing, you know, interesting aspect of Jules. And if you're looking at it critically, I don't know if your essays cover this, but, you know, Jules came out in the mid-70s and there's a reason a film in the mid-70s would would approach the story in the way that it did with the mayor of the town trying to cover it up. Um, and, you know, the way people in America felt about institutions and their leaders at that time would mm. partly f- even Steven Spielberg, who tends not to be that political in his films unless he's doing a specifically political subject, even he was tapping into that feeling at the time, you know, and and and, and that's exactly the, that era around Watergate and stuff like that. Yeah, so. exactly that. Yeah, it's it's similar. And when you watch um, Halloween, the first Halloween film that came out in the late seventies, when America was in the grip of this kind of paranoia about serial killers, so the ultimate film about. Um, uh, you know, that would scare the pants off the ordinary person living in America would be the one where some complete stranger just goes around killing you for no reason, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, which means, you know, the so-, so the social context for Halloween is one thing, and then 30 years later, the social context for something like Get Out, 40 years later, is totally different for a different reason. And when you start, you don't have to, you can just watch a film for itself, right? But if you do look, especially a good film, if you do look into, you know, what's under- underlying that film, you find all sorts of other things which, you know, you know, luckily for you, has helped has deepened your appreciation of the film rather than turned you off it. So that's a great yeah. experience. Well, it's, isn't it? it's, that's why we've got films like Judas and the Black Messiah and yeah, uh, uh, no, what's it called? One Night in Miami. Yeah, um, you know, getting nominated for Oscars given what's happened in the past year in America, especially. You know, it's uh, yeah, people would look back and see the films that were made in the last two or three years and 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 see the context. Like, wait, yeah, and we might. We might watch it. We might enjoy the films or appreciate the films exactly because they made that film made at that time. But the film historian or the film, anal, anal, you know, film analysis will kind of make you know you might not notice, but that's why it worked. You know. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's similar to me that like my the, the, when I watch it, you know, some of the films on my list, it's similar to that. There's a reason why it matters. That film matters in a certain way, you know. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to add on, Jules? Um, no. Very good. Okay, so I've got another one here. I don't know if this is on your list already. Don't um, think it will be. I'm my next one is now. is Twelve Years a Slave. It is on my list. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, let, let's do it together. I mean, for me, I think. Did you watch it first and then take me to see it for your second? No, no, I, no, no, no. We watched it first in Aberdeen. Remember, we, for some reason yeah. there was a fucking half past ten showing of Twelve Years a Slave. That's right, we for a super late and, showing. Yeah, and then we watched it with. Um, my stepmom. That was that was it. Yeah, um, I think we might have seen it twice before Dev watched it because remember saying I, I don't know how you could watch this film three times. I, I barely uh, got through one. I think I only saw it in the cinema twice. Oh, so maybe it was. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was that. Maybe, maybe I'm misremembering. But yeah, so yeah, same thing for me. The um the the intensity of the experience was uh you know part of it. You know, I don't, what, what, I don't know what your reasons are for it being on your list. One of the reasons for it me being on this, apart from it being just such a brilliant film is that one, it meant for me that in this era, and I know it's seven, eight years since this film came out now, but in this era there are still auteurs. I know it's a really poncy word, but there are still people who have a really genuinely special vision and a mastery of filmmaking, and they're not content to just noodle around on the indie scene. They're going to get a, a, a decent budget film for wide release to be seen by a lot of people, which, you know pushes boundaries both of making cinema and of subject matter and it means you've you know previous eras had a kubrick or a tarantino or a scorsese catherine bigelow these people who who are now renowned as the big directors and it it it's important to me anyway to be able to look at an era and say there are big filmmakers in that era you know and i think steve mcqueen announced himself as a big proper filmmaker when he brought this film out yeah um I agree. Um, in terms of changing my life, I know that sounds like a very dramatic thing, and it didn't change my life in that kind of. Aspect. Yeah. I, don't, I think I can actually say films, you know, change my life. I think it's just yeah. a nice way to kind of bracket. H- these. Hence my preface at the start. But yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, I think it's a nice way to kind of. It's kind of more like milestones in film, but that's yeah. not as catchy as films that yeah. change my life. Yeah. Um, it was just the first time I'd watched a film and thought that was amazing, but I hated watching it. It yeah. was the first time that you watched the film that was so. It was just so horrible. It's it's a film that there's films on this list that are about that are about dream heists and trying yeah. to get people to you know sell their companies by infiltrating their dreams. There's films about massive fat great white sharks terrorizing towns. There's films about space swords and and um, you know jedis in space. There's films about you know replicants and films about toys that aren't you know that are alive. And yeah. this was the film that I watched. I was like, "This cannot be fucking real. This yeah. cannot be fucking real." And the fact that it is, and it's you know, to the letter, you know, it's, it follows the biography, the autobiography of Solomon. And a first-hand account, right? Yeah, it's his. It's his autobiography. There's some things that we don't know about his death um, when he passed away, um, and there's kind of like things about you know how long he was at certain places for. But anyway, he. This was a. The story was. A free man in the north was captured, taken from his home in the north, 
and forced into slavery for 12 years of his life. And he didn't see his family for 12 years and went through the horrors and hardships of slavery. Um, and I just, I watched it and I thought, oh, fuck me. I knew about slavery. I knew of slavery. I knew of racism. I was 16 or 17 when this, I think I was 17 yeah, yeah. when I saw this film. I had a grasp of, you know, what was right and what was wrong with racism when this film came out. And watching this and you think, fuck me. Like, you know, this is brutal. You know, like a lot's changed since then, but how much has actually changed since then? You know. Absolutely. And yeah, it's like, we've talked before about whether a film should be a documentary or whether, you know, whether it should be a drama. And I think this is an instance of documentary is really good at giving you the full context of something, right? A good documentary like your, you know, your Ken Burns documentaries of Vietnam War over like, you know, 10 episodes that really just give you the full story. What a drama like this does is it really brings it to life. Yeah. You know, um, the, the way, the way you, know, you can never truly imagine it. A film is always going to be slightly sort of softer than, than, than actually living it. But, you know, it, it gives I'm you an insight. I'm going to say this, this, sorry, this film isn't, this film does, this film captures it, film really captures the horrors. Yeah, it's, it's it, you, it watch it, you watch it and say someone who survived that would be like someone who survived a concentration camp. Mm. With Except no, with no hint. 12 years. <laughs> no hint of exaggeration. Imagine living in a concentration camp for 12 years. Yeah, it's, it was it was horrible. And to kind of touch on the topic of films that should have been documentaries, the, the, the raw power and emotion of this film, this film was never meant to be an Oscar bait film because I don't yeah. think Steve McQueen is that person. He makes films because he thinks there's an important thing to be shown or discussed mm -hmm. in that film. Exactly. Um, he just ma he he makes the film that needs to be made about the subject. Problems with things like the theory of everything, because that is Eddie Redmayne pretending to be disabled for the last hour and ten minutes of the film. Why? Everyone knows the story of Stephen Hawking. Nobody knows the story of Solomon Northup before this film came out. Mm -hmm. um, the whole message of the film is that there was pr there was anti slavery messages, you know, like kind of like adverts. You know, I think it was after the film where it basically gave you a link to. Then it was yeah. on the credits. It was in the, in the DVD, the Blu-ray. You opened up yeah. and there was a leaflet that basically said, you know, there are still millions of people in slavery around the world and we need to fix that. Yeah, that yeah. was the message of this film. Whereas cunts like Eddie Redmayne kidding on their transgenders and kidding on their um, um, disabled because they're trying to win an Oscar can go and fuck themselves. Eddie Redmayne's a terrible actor and I fucking despise him because he's the problem with films. It should be a documentary. This film had such raw power that you, you felt it. You felt the 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 anger but also the despair of yeah uh, I don't want to butcher his name but Chiwetel Ejiofor yeah uh, Lupita Nyong'o's incredible performance you felt the raw power of everyone the, every mm -hmm. black actor in this film um and you know the it's it's stunning another film that ends qu quite closely you know in terms of how strongly sorry to Inception it's up there with you know the level of the final scene where um, yeah yeah he. 12 years, he's not seen his family, he goes in. Spoilers, if you've not seen it, go and watch it. What have you been doing? But um, he walks in, his children who were about five and seven at the time are now fully grown adults. Yeah. His wife is obviously, you know, older. And it's there's no score, there's nothing. It's just Chuetel Four walks in and he apologises. And that's the bit that breaks my heart. And he breaks yeah, down yeah. in tears and he gets to meet his grandson who's named after him. And you're just, you're blown away. It's, it's, 
It's because done... it, it really brings it to life, doesn't it? Because it'd be very easy to just go, what a happy reunion. But it actually, you know, because you've already done two hours of all the things that Solomon Northup's experienced up to that point, the dramatic stuff, the beatings, you know, literally being kept as a slave and all of those yeah. things. But like Steve McQueen's not finished, right? This final scene is properly going to pay yeah. off. And it's, but, what, what do you say? What does he say to his family? What do they say to him after 12 years? He just says, I'm sorry for my absence or something like that. It's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember watching it just going, I, I, I'm I, about to find out what these people said to each other. But I sim- at this point, I simply have no idea what they would say to each other yeah. in that situation. Well, the, I think the most important thing about it is that when it comes to slavery and it comes to issues with you know oppression against black people, people, especially white people, are far too quick to just go, oh, well, that slavery was terrible, but you know Abraham Lincoln helped emancipate them. 156 years ago. So well done, that's fixed. Yeah. So, and it's like, ah, you know, that was terrible. I don't think people actually understand the gravity of how horrible slavery was. Like, oh yeah, slavery was bad. They were whipped. They were, you know, living in cramped, filthy conditions. They didn't get fed properly. They had, you know, scars. They would die of exhaustion. They would have the life expectancy was like, it was terrible. They were a commodity. They were racially abused. They were seen as inferior because of the color of their skin. You know, there's that kind of thing, but you don't. I don't think you actually understand the gravity of it because when you're told from a textbook or you're told by a teacher at school, when there's thirty other people who are you know listening as well, it's a bit different when you can see it with your eyes. You can see mm-hmm. the the raw power and you know just it's this despair. That's the 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 message of this this film, the despair, but also the kind of strength that Solomon Northup had to you know see through those twelve years. But it was yeah, it wonderfully wonderfully done film it's and it's not just a message about you know the 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 um the emancipation of slaves and you know you know abolishing slavery as an institution it totally i think the best thing to to compare to is when did gone with the wind come out 1939 so 72 years uh, 74 years later sorry the best picture is uh, a film against slavery whereas gone with the wind was a film back in um 1939 which did nothing but glorify slavery it was like oh look at yeah it basically it, it didn't mention the slave bit very much it was all about what a nice life it was before the war for the people who lived in the south yeah it's more glorifying the south it paints the south as like look at the southern belle trying to find her eligible bachelor blah 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 yeah. whereas Steve McQueen paints the south as this dying shithole there's incredible shots that, that's of, the beauty of the film is the way he makes that happen the shots that stick out to me are the ones with like the willows because willows look like they're dying at the best of time and he manages to make them look like yeah. they're dying even more yeah um and then the shots of like you know rotting kind of cotton it it looks like the that area has some sort of plague yeah and yeah and not just a metaphorical one you know it's like a yeah yeah it's an incredible film i again i wouldn't say it changed my life because it's not a case of you know it 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 just hit uh you know kind of hit home to me like wow like i know actually and obviously i agree that it's terrible but now you actually get to see it on the screen just absolutely stunning piece it's a masterpiece it's again not no criticisms about that film if you pick you can't pick any criticisms of that film obviously when people obviously when it came out they were racist in the deep south they were like oh, oh no but remember remember oh, remember that they're overdoing me- it a bit aren't remember they? Yeah, that yeah. one house in that one plantation where that one slave got a biscuit every week you know yeah, fuck yeah. off you know it's yeah. yeah but other than that if you're a normal human being i don't think you'll have any problems like with, yeah like, you're, it's a hard watch but you won't have any criticism of the film because it's a film that you have to watch i think if i if someone says they're film that you have to see before you die it's that film you, it, yeah. you just have to watch absolutely it. and that's uh, similar reasons for why it's on my list that the, the i mean the other thing is is that you know steven spielberg has done a film about slavery amistad 
which is a very highly regarded film. It's a good film. There have been other films about slavery. There was the miniseries Roots, which was a, you know, a milestone of American television. 12 Years a Slave is just that level up because, it, and, and it's a benchmark for other film directors because it says a subject this tough and this hard and this powerful, the story like that needs to be told. And we're going to tell this story on film without compromise. And one of the best people who's ever got behind the camera is going to use absolute mastery of the art of cinema to tell this story absolutely right. And yeah. I do, I, it's 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 really difficult to separate the emotional and and you know the uh, power of the story and the, the importance of the story from the craft that's gone into the film. But it's worth um, uh, it's worth mentioning the uh, uh, the craft that's gone into this film because I've said this before. This is on a par with the greatest, the top level directors, your Kubricks, your Hitchcocks, who have said. This toolbox of film techniques, every single one of them is going to be used in the absolutely spot-on way to tell this story absolutely right. And the, the, the mastery of the cinema. And, and it, it just shows that there are auteurs out there still, filmmakers who will do something genuinely extraordinary with film. And every era needs that. You know, Steve yeah. McQueen's announced himself and there are new people coming through now. You know, Jordan Peele has somewhat achieved that with Get Out, but it's still very and early it, days. He does it in a him. different style to Steve McQueen, though. Yeah, he yeah, does it in different. a much more kind of pop culture kind of... Yeah, it, exactly. And But it's just, you know, you, you want people like Bong Joon-ho and Lynn Ramsey, who, who I'll mention, because every era has them. The 70s had Scorsese and Coppola and, and, and Spielberg, and the 80s still had Spielberg and so on. But every era needs to be able to stand up and say, who is flying the flag for genuinely great film in your era? And Steve McQueen is one of the people who's, who's flying that flag now. To be honest, that, that's think, I think that's why I've stopped watching the Oscars as much because it's there's not been a film as important as 12 Years Leave since then, in my opinion. And I don't think there ever will be. And my worry is, is that we'll look back in, say, 2035, when, you know, or maybe 2050, when we look back on films... Um, and you know, look back fondly on, for example, um, you know Hitchcock and Kubrick's and Spielberg's. Maybe we look back on those guys, and we, I think Steve McQueen will get kind of lost in that because, not that I disagree with it, the Oscars has now become more about representation as opposed to telling stories. Now that that's not to say that I'm I resent Chloe Zhao winning Best Director or. Francis McDormand winning, but it's now become about let's tell these types of films. Let's let's have these, you know, let's have these, let's have the representation as opposed to I want to watch a film about you know one of the most important things, and it's still important in, in society as well. So I think that's what when I look at Twelve Years of Slave, I look at it as a kind of generational film where yeah. the Oscars aren't like that anymore. They don't, and that for I'm not saying I want the Oscars to hark back to the the good old days because the Oscars have had a very checkered um, history, but I look at it and I think wow that film. We will never have, in my opinion, I don't think we'll ever have another occasion or momentous moment where you look back and go, fuck me. Wow. You make a very strong argument. The only, the only thing, I, I, can't, I can't be any more optimistic than you. The only, the only thing I'd say is I hope you're wrong. I hope, I hope someone yeah. proves this wrong, that someone picks up that gauntlet. That This year's Oscars are very strange because nothing really got properly tested with an audience in a cinema last year. Yeah. Not really. Um, but you're right. I think, but, so, but the thing is, someone needs to go out and make these films. 
And, yeah. and that's what that's why I mentioned Lynn Ramsey. Lynn Ramsey made her first film in the late 1990s. She has directed a total of four films because she is so uncompromising that if she can't do the film absolutely right, she won't do it. And different people approach that differently. Bong Joon-ho does a variety of films uh, because he wants to keep working. And every now and again, everything hits right and, and you get Parasite. And sometimes he just does something that's really f- brilliant and entertaining like Snowpiercer or The Host. But, you know, you want to see the really great directors at the top of their game just sit you down, knock your socks off and go, I've never seen anything like that before. Because that's what that's why it was important to me. You know, obviously 12 Years Slave is important for, for a range of reasons, but one of the big reasons I put it down there is you want to be able to, you just want the hope, you just want the excitement that you're going to, you, you're holding a ticket in your hand, you've got a, bottle, you know, a box of popcorn or your, your, your snack of choice, the music starts and you think, maybe, and not every film has to be that, it's, a, it's the latest kind of franchise film, it doesn't have to be, but you just, you want that hope to still be there that someone is going to do that again or something like that again because that's what keeps me going that's what keeps me watching you know yeah i agree but even when you look when i look at parasite i watched parasite and thought yeah i know it's got a bigger message in south korea because it's about classism yeah but it's not it's not as it's not as in my opinion it's not it's not in terms of the actual content of the film it's not as impactful as 12 years sure. later, but the, the thing that's a milestone for Parasite is that it's the first foreign, was it the first foreign language film to win Best Oscar? Yeah, yeah. Best Picture, sorry, not Best Oscar, yeah. what the fuck am I talking about, Best Picture? Yeah. And, you know, it swept up the awards and Boon Jong-ho won um, and he was the first South Korean. It was milestones, but that's what the Oscars are now, the milestones. And I've always said, yes, people should have more opportunities to create the films you want. I don't think you should make James Bond a woman. Have a female spy film. Have that representation. People will watch yeah. those films. But don't... We, to be honest with you, I, they, I think the Oscars are a fucking sham anyway. You just make a film. If it's incredible, it's an incredible. If you want to give it awards, that's up to you. I don't give a fuck. But now it's become about, oh, well, let's... Well, Chloe Zhao might win the Oscars. Sure, what a big occasion. And it's like, yeah, that, that, that is a big occasion. That uh, um, Was she the first Asian woman to win Best Director? Yeah, that's, she was, that's obviously yeah. a huge thing, especially for Chloe Zhao. I'm not taking that away from you. I've not seen Nomadland. I can't, um, yeah. I can't comment on it, but... There will, in my opinion, and again, I hope I'm wrong. There will not be a film as generational, as important as Twelve Years Slave, and I think it will still be, it will still be important because things will not change in America. Yeah. I mean, what what, what need, yeah, what needs to happen is that look, there's always been a little. It's probably more polarized now, but there's always been that element of some of these films are made just to make money. Some of these films are made for prestige, you know. Yeah. Um, and the people that genuinely get remembered are the ones who totally broke the mold, and they say. This I am not just gonna I'm not gonna tone this down for you know for commercial reasons, but I'm not gonna I'm not just just be content to just noodle around on the film festival circuit with my indie film and pick up awards. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna make a film that genuinely pushes the boundaries. And like I say, it, it's very difficult to imagine within the current film landscape. You know that many people being in a position to do that. I hope they do. I hope someone right now is sitting. You know, they've got that. If you, you talk about the great filmmakers, and you know Scorsese was like this in the seventies, Ridley Scott was like this with Blade Runner, Tarantino was like this when he's on top form. They've just got this absolutely burning need. There's a film that they really need to make if it's the last thing they do, right? And that sheer fire to do a film that just really—I'm not content. I'm—I can't rest until this film 
is made or I make the film that absolutely achieves that absolute perfect state. And there's only a small number of people that are going to be kind of genuinely unreasonable enough and perfectionist enough to do it. But those are the people that make the films that get talked about the way 12 Years a Slave gets talked about. I hope I hope there's more to come. I hope someone new comes along. Um, as I say, I agree with you, the current film landscape doesn't... Uh, doesn't lend itself to that, but I hope someone's out there going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not taking away from the hard work and the, the poignant stories that have been told with the recent Oscar nominations. I watched Sound of Metal and thought that was very good. Yeah. And, you know, it draws attention to the problems that deaf people face. And obviously, Riz Ahmed did that film because he wanted more people to be aware of it. Absolutely. Totally understand that message. But, you know, what happens is that that message of the film, I agree with that message and deaf people are obviously kind of, I think, kind of forgotten about in society and that's the whole point of this film. But then it was just stuff like, oh, Riz Ahmed's the first British Pakistani guy to be uh, nominated for it. And I was like, sh- sh- shut the fuck up about that. Yeah, it's a great thing, but look at the fucking that's content not the of the real film. Thing. That's not the real thing, yeah. And Riz Ahmed, oh, Riz Ahmed will be proud that he's, you know, British Pakistani being nominated for an Oscar. Well, he'll be proud of that, but he's also trying to say like, look, deaf yeah. people have it fucking tough, you know. Not everything's as accessible, you know. You know, hearing aids and that and cochlear implants aren't as you know you know definitive in solving you know deafness as people think it's tough and that's the point of the film and the film's really good at doing that but what fucks me off is it's like oh look at this woman that's winning an oscar oh look at this guy being not sure like shut the fuck up and actually look at the content of the yeah. film instead of trying to make yeah, it that, fucking that, yeah, that for all these the ethnic minorities thing. like fuck me man and that's that, the, the only that's the only way you'll get over the whole fucking problem with the the division between ethnic minorities and different races is if you stop fucking highlighting it highlight the injustice when a black person shot by the police yeah of course but stop fucking going on about the fact that Rizam is a British Pakistani or Chloe who's Chinese yeah they want to celebrate it like that but please look at the content of the films yeah, yeah. They, they, they deserve tell. to be they deserve to be celebrated for their cinematic achievement you know yeah, not just because what me. they represent to other people I mean the flip side to that is that and I said this when I you know reviewed Judas and the Black Messiah last month was that's a really good film and it tells a really important story, but cinematically it could have been done better. And, you know, it shouldn't be enough to just say, oh, well, we portrayed a very important story. Yeah. But you should be striving for the best cinematically as well, because you're making yeah. a film. Uh, and, that, and that's why 12 Years a Slave is absolutely the top of the pile for me in that sense, because it really just takes things absolutely up to a new level. And it says it's not enough to just say, here is some stuff that happened. That is very powerful. No, 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 no. You've got to... It's like, what would the perfect outcome be of delivering this film? And, you know, Stephen Queen didn't rest until he'd got that. And you need filmmakers to do that. And I'm, yeah. I'm delighted that he's a black man who's won an Oscar. I'm delighted that, you know, those stories have been told. It's also really, really important that genuine cinematic greatness is, is genuinely important. Because Stephen Queen didn't work four or five years of his life to make that film, to just give, be given a pat on the head for having his heart in the right place. Yeah, but getting getting he, a pat he, on the head for being a black guy winning an Oscar. Yeah, really. he, worked, he worked his fingers to the bone so that that film would be made the way it needed to yeah. be made. And I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure the black message is incredibly important to him most of all. But, you know, that cinematic standard, you know, that's that's what you know. That's what will mean. It's remembered yeah, it, for a very long time. I don't know if it's just the way I see things, but I find it absurd. Like, you know, for example, Marcus Rashford doesn't play football because he wants to be a black man that plays football. He plays football because he wants to play football. The same way that Steve McQueen makes films because he wants to make films. He doesn't. And the, if you have to point out every time that Steve McQueen is, you know, I don't know if I don't know if he was the first black man to win best uh, 
picture or something like that. But you know what I mean? You know, you don't have to point out someone's differences because if you actually stop fucking focusing on them, then you'll actually. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I, 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 I totally understand why they will, why will they will notice. Wow, this is the first time a black man's won, or this is the first time. You know, this is only the second time a woman's won Best Director, but. I would hate to think that was the reason they won Best Director. You should you should give Chloe Zhao credit for being a good director yeah. first and foremost. You know, and that's um, like I say, it, once people are going to the cinema again, and and you know, Nomadland gets seen by a lot of people, and the audience connects with it in the cinema. Chloe Zhao can say, "Look, I made a good film," mm. and and I think because it was almost as if the uh, the Oscars were able to mark their own homework this year. You know. Yeah, well, that's the thing. They had that big outcry when Will Smith didn't get nominated for Best Actor for Concussion when he wasn't any of the anywhere near being the best actor that year. But yeah. there was obviously a that problem with the fact that you know there wasn't enough representation and you know people wanted more exposure to certain films. Sure, fine, but Parasite wasn't the best film from twenty nineteen. It wasn't, but it it won Best Picture, Best Director. It wasn't. I've seen it. It's it's all right. It's yeah. not that good. But I feel like now the that's the problem with films like 12 Years a will not get the focus because they're going to stop looking at the fucking story and be like, look, a South Korean guy has been nominated for best director. Like look at the content of the story. And, and I'm all for the representation and having more people like, you know, Francis McDormand, you know, you know, winning best actress because she was the best performance that year. The same with Chloe Zhao earning the plaudits that she deserves. But you need to look at the, the, the whole point of films is that you look at the content of the film and if by coincidence a black woman directed it or a black man directed it or a Latino guy directed it, cool. But that shouldn't be the most important thing. That's the whole point about the, the, yeah. the people make them do a good job, but don't just start you know drawing connections out of thin air and drawing statistics because that's the problem. They're making them into statistics. Yeah. This person is the first black guy to do so-and-so in X, Y, and Z. The first black person to be nominated for best score. Like, sh- shut the fuck up, because the whole problem is black people don't want to be seen as statistics and seen as people murdered by the police and incarcerated by the, the government. They want to just be represented, and now they're getting the representation. They're still going on about fucking... Yeah, the, past you- two best, the past two best directors have both been from Asia. You know, I know Chloe Zhao moved to America when she was like 15, but she's obviously... She's of Chinese heritage, yeah, and they they still and it's obviously celebrate those milestones, but don't lose the the content and the quality of the, the film. The, the, the way I look at that. it is this: the way I look at it is this: if you the work that needs to be put into representation and diversity is to making sure that people of all of those different groups, backgrounds, ethnicities, etc., get the chance to make a film or be in a film. You haven't helped anyone if all those people find it much harder than white people to be in a film or make a film in the first place and then slap an award on the minority who get through. Yeah. All the, the effort should go into saying all of those people should get a chance to make the film. And once they've made the film, they can take their chances with everyone else at awards time. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's where the effort should go. And I think a lot of this stuff with the Oscars is about making themselves feel good and patting themselves on the back for having been nice about it. And we all know what the Oscars are. But the important thing is you need someone like Steve McQueen who is going to spend however many years making the film he wants to make. And he made Widows, which is a heist movie. It didn't have to be a message film, although his next project has been this small axe thing for TV, which is about black issues. He's you know His first two films weren't about black issues at all. He just made the film that needed to be made. When, he, he, wants tell to, a story, when yeah. he wants to make a film about black issues, please do. Um, but most of all, I just want to see the next Steve McQueen film. And and that's important. He, yeah. he, is, an, he, is, he is an auteur that I will seek out 
every film he makes, and you need yeah. people like that for film to, yeah, to still it, matter. It, it, I'm probably getting annoyed over nothing because I don't get as annoyed when it comes to like footballers because it doesn't matter where the footballer for my team's from as long as he does his job and plays well and helps my team win. Mm. Fine. I don't care if he's the first Zimbabwean to ever play for Sunderland. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's I don't I don't give a shit. But you know, it just seems like a lot of oh look at what we're doing. We're now giving people Oscars because we were told to. It's like no. Give, if if the best director this year was David Fincher for Mank, it's because he made the best film. It's because he made the best film and he was the best director. His direction, according to the Academy, was a white man that did it. Fine. Next year, it might be a Chinese woman. The year after that, it might be a black woman. Fine. Yeah, and, and, th- and therein yeah. lies the issue. I mean, the stats that matter is more women are getting to make films, exactly. more people of colour are getting to make films, and that's where it counts. And yeah. the, the, the Oscars... For a long time, the Oscars have always been about self-congratulation. And yeah. in, in the end, I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, you look at a lot of the times the best film of the year doesn't win Best Picture. But what, what matters is, in you know, in history, that over time the genuinely best films will be remembered. And I, I like you, think that 12 Years a Slave is going to be remembered for a very, very, very long time yeah. among, the, you know, the, the best films. Yeah, we got, we got kind of way, way laid there, but... <laughs> I only have one film left on my list. Same. I don't think they'll be the same one. Shall I go? Yeah, you go first because it won't be the same as mine. Okay, so my my last sort of film that changed my life is uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah, no, no. no. <laughs> and again, th- this is this is on my list for a very specific reason, which is down to you know my age, my generation, the way you know I watched films and various things like that. And obviously, the the thing is a great film. It's John Carpenter's undisputed masterpiece. Um, I'm you know for the year year of the carpenter feature I'm doing them in ascending order of IMDb rating so it's no surprise the things coming you know bet last and best. Um, um, the reason why this is is down for me is that I don't know, like I've mentioned it before the home video experience was absolutely crucial to my generation of film in the eighties there uh, you know there was quite a long time where there wasn't a cinema near me. And cinema, you know, fell down, and, and and a lot of films had a second life on on video anyway. And there was a, a special experience about you know getting to see a film on video rental, which was an absolute explosion in the eighties. You know, you watch a lot more films on video than you do in the cinema. Um, you know, you know, and if a films of fifteen or above, I wouldn't be able to get to see it in the cinema anyway. Although I did, you know, close your ears, James, sneak in a few times underage to watch a film I wasn't actually allowed to see. Blah blah blah. There weren't that many television channels. It took years for films to get shown on TV. So video rental was where it was at. And I know you've been into a blockbuster, you know, because there was still some, you know, video rental and blockbuster when you were a kid. But, you know, when I was a kid, there were loads and loads of independent video stores and they had their own character. You know, there was one walking distance from my house. You walked in and it was like an Aladdin's cave for a film nerd like me. The wall is plastered with what are essentially mini film posters because every film's you know, video case is on the wall displaying that they've got that film and then there's a slot beside it to where you take out the case to, to, to get the film. And so there's this, this Aladdin's Cave, there's The Boogeyman, there's Idi Amin, there's Escape from New York, there's Flash Gordon. All of these films are just portrayed on the shelves. You know, uh, Quentin Tarantino worked in a video shop, you know, in the 80s. It has that place in the film experience, right? It was, 
And that these film posters always, you know, showed all sorts of thrills and adventures. And you, you hoped that when you rented it, it would be as good as the cover suggested. There was a whole thing about it was they didn't have that many copies of every film. They would have one VHS copy and one Betamax copy of, of the film. And no one had Betamax. Everyone had a VHS player. So there's only ever one copy of the film you want to watch. So you go, oh, it's not there. It's not in. Oh, that one's in. And you, it was a, an experience in itself just finding the film. And the thing was one of the ultimate kind of home video experiences. I had no chance of getting to see that at the cinema at the time. I still haven't seen it at the cinema. But it was one of those of intense uh, experiences. You watch the thing and it's just, oh, my God. God, it was one of those films that you go and tell you, oh, you see the bit where his hands got bitten off and it's like, you know, really cool and really gory, but such a gripping, amazing, visceral experience that, you know, you brought into your own home and it meant that you went on this little adventure and then at the end you got to see this film that just completely blew your fucking mind. And the thing was just the ultimate, like, expression of what you got out of a home video, you know, feeling. It's one of my ambitions that it gets shown in repertory in London from time to time is to see that on the cinema, but I have this kind of whole... Uh, relationship with the film because you used to have that experience of like renting a film and it was this whole thrill to get to see it, you know? No, no. And that's why, that's why the thing was my, you know, number five on my list. No, very good. I don't, I don't really have anything to add. It's, uh, it sounds like a film that you're just always going to be passionate about. It's one of those films that you just, you and, just love. Yeah, and, and it's it was for me, it was the age I saw it. It was towards the end. I was probably 18 before I saw it. It's an 18 rated film, but it's it was the, just, it was like the pinnacle of a very important period in my life, a certain time and a place. And that's that film for me, someone else, some listener on, you know, is tuning into this. It will be a different film for them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a very personal thing. Aye. No, that's, uh, I don't have anything to add. That's right. So I've, so I've completed my five. Uh, what's, what's your last one? My last one is rear window by Alfred Hitchcock. Very interesting. Um, I think it was the first time I'd watched a film that was ages, you know, you know, ages in the past. It was it was released in something ridiculous like what, 1954, 56? Yeah, yeah. 54, so it's 42 12. years older than you. I, I watched it 57 years after it came out. No, no, exactly 60 years after it came out, sorry. Um it would be yeah, it would be it'd be the equivalent of me watching, I don't know, King Kong in nineteen ninety, yeah. something like that, you know? So I kind of it was kind of like, oh, fucking Hitchcock. I know everyone goes on about being a classical director, but fuck me, I just don't. I think like most folk, I don't, I, I've grown up with Star Wars, Toy Story, all these computer-generated films, and I try my best to try and watch films that are from back in the day, and sometimes I don't like them, like Seven Samurai, but fortunately with Rear Window, I really did. It was, it just blew me away. It was, again, when I talk about Inception and how the, the sheer genius to write a film that clever and still exceed my expectations and supersede your own you know genius with that idea and end it perfectly was similar kind of ilk with the rear window it's i don't think it ends as strongly as as perfectly as, as some of the other films that i've mentioned but just to be as pioneering with an idea that okay jimmy stewart's uh i can't remember his character's name which is terrible but he's uh he's broken his leg and he's in a wheelchair and he's uh, he's yeah, he's like he's like a yeah, he's like a journalist, photographer, photojournalist. He's always how he, normally. How does he break his leg again? Is he photographing like a, a car race or something? I can't remember exactly how he does it, and I've I not seen it for ages. But basically, Hitch, Hitch, Hitchcock gives is one of those things in Hitchcock film. If he gives you the reason how he broke his leg, 
it doesn't really matter anyway. Yeah, he's generally. normally the guy who wants to be hanging out the side of a Jeep but, photographing a war in Africa, and instead he's cooped up in his apartment with a, with a yeah, cast on his leg and can't the, move. So when I heard that, it was Jimmy Stewart. Like, when you see the start of the film, it's like, Jimmy Stewart's just stuck in a wheelchair, and he's just, you know, he's basically being a peeping Tom all day. It's like, is this a film? And it's brilliant. It's just fucking amazing. Basically, what ends up happening is that he uses his camera to basically look in and around just his kind of I don't know what you would call that area of like in between four apartment blocks. It's like a it's like a like big a, courtyard, isn't it's it? It's like a courtyard where like it's kind of like communal between you know, basically like a big square. Of yeah, I, I imagine it. I mean, it, it could have been like four buildings that all overlook yeah. the same square, or it could have been one massive block. Yeah, which has anyway. a which has a square in the middle. We're getting with it, and basically the entire film is from the perspective of Jimmy Stewart's character. Now you've got Grace Kelly, Grace Kelly's character, who again I can't remember the name of because it's been that long since I've seen it. But you have so, her, Jimmy Stewart plays L. B. Jeffries or Jeff that's for sure, it. and Grace Kelly plays Lisa Fremont. Yeah, so she comes in and she's sort of like a love interest, and she's she's also very good because it's Grace Kelly and. It's basically just you know you know her kind of looking after him, but he basically watches like spoiler. It's been out for sixty seven years, but um, he basically he sees one of his neighbors you know being kind of creepy and up to no good, and he's kind of dismissing like you're just you're just bored out your mind because you've been stuck inside with a broken leg all this time, and he's basically obsessing over this guy. He's sure he's up to no good. And it's actually really thrilling, and you think a guy that's wheelchair bound, and it's from the entire perspective of the film is from one balcony or one room in an apartment and you think how yeah. and it's it's brilliant it's it's just so well done and the thing that's amazing about it is that that's a film when they're in the early not the early days of cinema but you know there's still cinema is still you know in its infancy in terms put, of put know, it this way hitchcock is still inventing some of the stuff yeah. he's doing it's on, a, on, it's on, a, in his it's film. A film in the black and white era it's you know there's still you know there's not mad special effects but that's a film that you could watch. I watched it in 2014 and it still stood the test of time. I was like, wow. Yeah. This film is, you know, they, they could do that. If that film, if that film hadn't been written, yeah, the rear window didn't exist. It would come out to tomorrow and it would still be an excellent film because yeah. it, it would be a film. It would be a film that the award season would gobble up because it's just, it's just brilliant. It's, it's such a, yeah, it's just, it's just a good film. It's, it's not like, you know, a powerful Oscar winning performance. It's just, you watch it and you go, wow. This guy's a genius, Hitchcock. He's got his problems, you know. He doesn't know how to treat his leading lady very well, but it's just you watch it, and it's just this guy's a, a filmmaking genius. Yeah, and the, I mean, Hitchcock was a, a director who principally made his films to entertain people, but his um, he so which is why he doesn't, you know, get you know the, the credit in his own lifetime because even then. Films had to have some sort of social importance, usually, to um, uh, to to get you know some of the awards recognition that you would normally see. But he yeah. was the absolute master of what he did, and there was a thing that he he was very good at understanding what his audience would be, you know, compelled by, yeah, and and manipulating his audience, you know, in the best possible way. And the, you know, the he did it. So many of his films are about someone who's either seen a crime or is accused of a crime and no one believes him or her. No one believes what she's seen or is going through. And that makes you sit and, and feel that burning anxiety in yourself and you watch it because you immediately empathize with that central character who nobody believes is in his alignment, trying to convince them to believe them. 
all the better that it's Jimmy Stewart because he's like the most relatable uh, guy next door. To, you know, Tom Hanks is now. It's like you put him in that situation and it's just impossible not to identify with that central character. It's also the culmination of Hitchcock. He'd spent about 10 years prior to this film uh, perfecting the things that he would use in this film. He did a film called Rope, which has got a lot of long takes and is only set in one location, one apartment. He did a film called Lifeboat, where that you know he only um, he only takes part literally in in one set, a, a lifeboat literally at sea. So by the time he came to do a Rear Window, he knew exactly how to make that incredibly limited set work. And you know, my mum, your grandmother loves this film because she's a people watcher, so she just loves the idea of this person being nosy and seeing what's going on in everyone else's mm. everyone else's lives. I mean, you know, Hitchcock was a bit of a voyeur. A lot of his films were very voyeuristic, but he also understood that voyeurism is a part of cinema, and making your audience complicit with that voyeurism is what you know. If you're guilty and complicit, then you're being dragged along for the ride, you know, and you're and you're you're essentially sitting next to Jimmy Stewart looking out that window, seeing what he sees. And it's it's just an abs- it's just absolute mastery. It's one of the absolute, you know, big dogs of the game on absolute top form, just saying, you are now in the palm of my hand and you will know when it's time not to be in the palm of my hand because I'll let you go. But you will be here until I let you go. Absolute, total, you know, brilliance. Yeah. I've got nothing else to add. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah you know, like you say, there are, there are certain films that you know stack up. You know, you know, no matter when they're watched, absolutely yeah, stand out, stand out. So we've we've done our five. Um, as an audience, we hope you you know would think of you know some people actually replied on socials and gave their five. But you know, it's I think it's one to think about. If you were to list five films that are absolutely milestones for you, there's some personal reason why you would why you would. Uh, you know, list them. Please, you know, please think about your own lists. Um, did you have any 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 near misses, James? Anything that you you know, if you if you'd been allowed to say six, you'd have you'd have you'd have had another one, ones that you mm. thought about and took out, or you know, ones that were that you you sort of sweated over a bit. Um, no, I was quite quite sure with mine. I think I was quite fine not having Star Wars in because. It's just a film. I think it's different between a film, you know, having an impact and just something that you really, really like and enjoy. That was the yeah, way yeah. I kind of saw. I didn't have any yeah. near misses. Yeah, I mean, I had a couple of near misses. I mentioned Inception. That very nearly made it to my list. Uh, another one that nearly made it to my list was Apocalypse Now because I went to see that at a like a, a, a revival showing, you know, years after it had come out. And sit, that's another incredible cinematic experience. Um, but I guess there were other films that were, you know, just pipped it to the post. Uh, Jackie Brown, because it was, and I've mentioned it before, you know, I was the age, roughly you are now, when Jackie Brown came out. So Tarantino was the direct, the preeminent director of what seemed, was like my generation, you know, my era of film. Uh, and that was an amazing thing to see Jackie Brown come out and, and uh, just, you know, be, be so exciting to see. So that was very close. And another one I uh, I nearly put in was uh, when I watched Alien on the TV for the first time. That came very close to my list, but didn't quite make it. I was okay. I was eleven when I saw Alien on TV. I've still got no idea when my mum let me watch it. Then again, she let me watch Jaws when I was about six. So yeah, it was the it was the eighties, man. It was the eighties. It was terrible, and and it was it was on uh, it was on IT, it was on commercial television, which meant there were ad breaks, and every ad break was a test of my nerve to keep watching and not run out <laughs> to say I'm going to bed. You know, so every twenty five minutes I was going. 
can I keep watching or can I not keep watching? But yeah, that <laughs> didn't didn't quite make into my list, but I thought they they were worth kind of getting an honourable mention. Sweet. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The podcast was edited and mixed with the help of Audacity, Anchor FM and Zencaster. As usual, anything that sounded good was down to them and anything that sounded crap was down to us. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. The Damned United is available to buy on disc or digital copy from all the usual outlets. As of May 2021, it's available to watch for free if you have access to BBC iPlayer. The story of David Lean's Nostromo is in the book The Greatest Movies You'll Never See edited by Simon Braund and in a Spanish language documentary called David Lean's Impossible Dream. Outside of Double Reel, you can find me co-hosting the What You Say In podcast. And you can find me leading a small team of soldiers of fortune on the run for a crime we didn't commit. So this is me, James Adamson, signing off and... This is me, James Adamson, signing off. Your next podcast episode will be our regular episode 14 next month. Keep an eye on the socials for any bonus or special episodes we decide to do in future. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. Until then, stay safe, watch lots of films and may your life be be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. And 2,130,327,622 people have been born since Hans Zimmer last won an Oscar. Your next podcast episode will be our regular episode 12 next month. Do you want to do that again? Because it's episode 14. Did I? What a fucking idiot. <laughs>